From EAB, I'm Matt Pellish, and this is Office Hours. In 2014, for the first time, the population in American public schools became majority-minority, and this shift has led to college and university campuses also growing more diverse. But at the exact same time, faculty diversity has barely moved in the last 20 years. On today's episode, we're joined by executive editor of Diverse Issues in Higher Education, David Pluvios, who sits down with EAB's Rachel Tanner to talk faculty diversity and offer some concrete steps that universities can take to change things for the better. It's easy to argue that achieving diversity in in hiring for faculty is the morally right thing to do. But David's also going to talk us through the business case and why current hiring freezes, which are a universal way to save money in the midst of COVID and an economic downturn, they don't have to be a barrier to success. And finally, Rachel and David will talk about the importance of grooming students of color for careers in higher education and of supporting them along their journey. Thanks for listening, and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Well, hello out there, Office Hours listeners. This is Rachel Tanner. I'm a director in EAB's research department, uh, and I am recording today from my home in beautiful Park Slope, Brooklyn, where the sun just came out and is shining upon me, which makes me very happy. Uh, And I'm really excited to be here with you today because, uh, as anyone who's ever met me knows, uh, I'm a huge podcast and radio nerd and have always harbored a not-so-secret dream of being a radio host. So uh, I get to uh, start my new career today. Uh, Don't tell my manager. And I'm actually really excited, too, that I am joined by David Pluvios today, who is the executive editor for Diverse Issues in Higher Education. It's a publication that focuses on news and information about uh, diversity and multiculturalism in American higher education. So David, thank you for dropping by our office hours and helping me realize my radio dreams. Thank you so much, Rachel. So David, uh, for those of our listeners who don't have diverse, uh, you know, as a uh, bookmark on their browser tab yet, uh, why don't you tell us a couple of stories or trends that you guys have been tracking uh, that have been particularly interesting to you recently? Thanks so much, Rachel. Um, it's so good to be uh, here with uh, all of you. Some of the issues uh, um, that uh, we have been tracking, I think one of the most important stories out there in higher education right now um, is with regards to who is not coming back to college. Uh, we know that uh, privileged students, you know, even in the pandemic, you know, even though they were told to, to go home by and large, you know, their homes were large enough. Uh, they, they had dedicated study spaces at home, uh, didn't have an issue with internet access, uh, didn't have an issue with technology. Of course, uh, the disruption um, was universal, but for privileged students, uh, you know, my sense is by and large, um, they were able to make uh, the necessary accommodations to continue along their uh, college path. But one of the most um, interesting and important stories uh, is who is being left behind uh, amid uh, this initial rush to go online. You know, if I'm a student, um, I'm a first generation student. You know, I'm the first in my family to go to college and uh, have overcome a number of barriers. And if I am going into school in a pandemic, 
um, I might be the first to be uh, left behind. So I think that that's one of the most important stories. Uh, who is being left behind and what can be done uh, to allow underprivileged students the opportunity to come back. So I think that's uh, one of the most uh, important stories. Uh, another one that uh, I think that we all need to look at is uh, what happens to diversity initiatives um, when budgets get cut. You know, over the years, of course, when institutions have had a financial difficulty of various kinds, you know, we're always tracking, all right, uh, did you come for the chief diversity officer and their staff? Um, what was, you know, is diversity a luxury or a necessity, right? And so I think that that's another story that we're tracking to see, all right, um, in lean times, we get to see um, what institutions uh, believe when it comes to diversity. Uh, is it a necessity or a luxury? And so just looking to see um, what importance institutions place on diversity as they're um, cutting some budget. So these are a couple of stories, uh, Rachel, that uh, I see that are important these days. <laughs> yeah, and I... I think that you know this is a moment where we are you know having a lot of reflection across the entire country on these big questions of, of diversity and equity, and they often do, as they should, revolve around students and who's getting left behind, as you mentioned. Um, one of the parts of those discussions, though, that I find often get ignored, and one of the reasons why we asked you to come and have this conversation today is uh, the way that it relates to faculty on campus, though. You know, we're always uh, very interested in making sure students have clear pathways to a college degree or equitable pathways to making sure they feel a sense of belonging on our campuses. But it's also really important in that uh, work to make sure that we have a diverse faculty body, that they also feel a sense of belonging on campuses. And just as you were talking about with uh, diversity initiatives, often those kinds of uh, uh, initiatives are the first to go when budgets get tight. So we know that hiring uh, diverse faculty is the moral thing to do. We know it's the ethical thing to do. But what do you tell to administrators who are looking at their bottom lines and wondering if there's a business case for uh, making sure that your faculty is diverse uh, and feels included on campus? Yes, Rachel, great, great question. And um, I think that it has been proven. Uh, there's all kinds of research that proves that diverse organizations perform better than homogeneous organizations. Um, there is a business case to be made that across the board, organizations of all kinds have better returns, um, have better results, better outcomes when the participants come from various backgrounds. They bring different strengths uh, to the table. They bring different experiences to the, to the table. And so when it comes to serving their customers, no matter who they are, because their team is diverse, their team is better equipped uh, to provide that service, and that's just across the board, but certainly in the business world, um, so much literature has been written about, even if you do not want 
diversity, even if you're not comfortable with diversity, if you would like to see more profits, then do it for your pocketbook, you know, do it for your pocketbook. Um, Field a diverse team. And the same goes for higher education. The same goes for higher education. Rachel, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, the student population is not gonna become more homogeneous as we progress, is becoming more diverse. Um, America is becoming more, you look at the census, uh, the majority minority prospect is going to be real. Uh, at institutions across the board, we know the students are more diverse. We, what we also know, Rachel, is that diverse students perform better when they have professors that look like them. So it behooves institutions, institutions that want to see um, higher graduation rates. Well, you're going to help your diverse students um, graduate at a better rate if you have diverse faculty uh, teaching them. And so, Rachel, it's been proven. You know it's the right thing to do. But if you look at even historically Black colleges, for instance, and we talk about um, the HBCU experience, and we know the statistics have proven that uh, HBCU graduates are overrepresented uh, among judges and doctors and lawyers and all kinds of professionals. Why? Because the culture is built to invest in the minority student, right? They have the platform for success. And so when they come out into the world, they are advantaged. It's not only HBCUs that can provide that culture and climate of nurture for minority students, Majority schools can do that as well, but if their faculty uh, is homogeneous, then that's just not going to happen, Rachel. In fact, you know, I saw some uh, saw a statistic. Um, this was from Pew. Pew did an article on uh, tracking diversity trends, faculty relative to students, uh, from 1997 to 2007. It showed a market increase in terms of students becoming more and more diverse in those 10 years. Um, but faculty trends are just flat. So across the board, Rachel, students are becoming more diverse. But across the board, faculty numbers are more stagnant. And I believe that beyond the fact that it's the right thing to do, if institutions want better outcomes, uh, want higher graduation rates, want alums that are making good salaries and are going to come and give back to the institutions, want alums that care about the institution, that think fondly about their experience at their institutions. It behooves them to make sure that the increasing diversity in their student body is matched in faculty ranks. So, uh, Rachel, I think it's just clear on a number of levels. It's the right thing to do, but should an institution want to improve its metrics? Should an institution want to have graduates who think fondly of their experience and are giving back? It's going to help their bottom line to keep a focus on diversity. 
Yeah, wow, you really uh, covered every element there from outcomes to success to alumni uh, giving. Um, so obviously, it's clear across the board, it's the right thing to make sure that your faculty is as representative as possible of your student body. So let's talk for a little bit about the, the hows. So we know we, we need to be making some movement, some change uh, here, but there's a big question of, of how, um, particularly right now at a time when I think, uh, as they say, we're not in hiring freezes, but we're definitely seeing some hiring chills. Uh, fewer uh, faculty hires to be made than we would have liked at this moment. What can schools be doing to make sure that they are developing a pool of diverse candidates for openings, uh, faculty openings right now and in the future? Uh, as we move forward? Well, we did an article recently, in fact, a couple of articles uh, that offered uh, some tips. And I think that, you know, one of the most important uh, elements when it comes to um, diverse faculty hiring is um, having diversity ingrained at the departmental level, at the, at, at the level at which decisions are made with regards to hiring faculty. We talk a lot about chief diversity officers that look at an institution holistically. Um, and a lot of fanfare is sometimes, you know, you know, given and we've hired this to chief diversity officer. But the, the real work of diversity happens at the departmental level, right? Happens in those faculty searches. Um, one of the problems that we have is that a search process can be insular, um, can have outcomes that are homogeneous and so much. We know that we have a problem with faculty diversity, but if those searches are not intentionally diverse, both in terms of who is conducting them and, and in terms of desired outcomes, not much is going to change. So. We had a piece recently that said, hey, listen, at the department level, we need to have faculty equity advisors involved in every single search. Because if the search is comprised of faculty, the reality is going to be majority, right? Because if most of your faculty are majority, most of the faculty are white, if you are looking for a search committee, that's what is going to happen. And so the problem that we see is going to continue to uh, perpetuate itself. One of the most important things that has to happen is that at the departmental level, and you might have to go outside the department, you need what we, what we what call called a, a faculty equity advisor. Um, intentionally, somebody who is involved in every search, somebody who is in tune to implicit bias and how that can affect searches. And a lot of times it's not intentional, Rachel. That's why we call it implicit bias, right? You know. Um, you don't think that there's bias, but the reality is if your search, the people who are involved in your search are look the same, <laughs> the same backgrounds, you know, by and large, they um, will prefer in hiring someone who's just like them. So um, recognizing that implicit bias, um, having an equity advisor, even if you have to pull from another department in every search to interrupt bias. I think that that's one of the most important steps that has to be taken 
at the departmental level, should we want to see progress in terms of uh, diverse hiring for faculty? Yeah, I love that idea, almost like providing an ombuds for your search committee, um, somebody who is paying attention to uh, not just um, who you're hiring, but how you're hiring as well. Um, do you have any other tips for search committees when it comes to making sure that hiring practices are equitable um, so that uh, all of those diverse candidates you have in your pool have uh, an, an easy or a, a, an equitable shot at the, the short? You know, it's interesting. And you make me think of the pandemic. You know, what we all know the difficulties um, with regards to the pandemic, you know, financially and otherwise. But what are the opportunities? One of the opportunities is no travel expenses, you know, is, you know, you can interview anybody at any time, anywhere. You know, so uh, one of, you know, the historical, you know, we talk about in, in football, the Rudy rule, right? You know, if you're looking for an NFL coach, that's diverse, you know, you need to have, it's just, it's just codified, right? You've got to have a diverse candidate in the pool. And of course, um, that has to happen. Um, you know, a lot of, uh, search, you know, search people involved in searches will say, Hey, listen, we, we can't find a diverse scholar in this discipline, you know? Um, but I think that, um, that ruling rule, you know, needs to be in place because now, Rachel, it doesn't matter where they could be in Alaska, they could be overseas, you know, they could be uh, in any country in the world. You can have anybody come in, you know, via Zoom or some other platform uh, to be on the interview. So the other, the other, um, I think, important step that could be taken is a is a is a rooting rule. Make it intentional. Make it intentional. If your search, you know, it has you know, seven um, people, you know, seven, you know, people from majority background, uh, and you say you can't find, well, you know, you, you, need, to, you need to pause the search. <laughs> you need to pause the search uh, and make it a requirement, Rachel. I think that it requires that level of intentionality uh, should we want to see progress. Interesting. So you advocate not just a sort of diversity goal in your application pool, but even as you're moving through the process and, uh, and, and shortening the list of potential candidates to continue to set diversity goals for yourself and your committee. Absolutely. Hold yourself accountable. Um, and we know that, you know, yes, at the end of the day, it may not be, but, but, but holding yourself accountable in that way, I think will produce results uh, and has, I believe, as well. Yeah, interesting. So, you know, once you put all of that effort and time and, uh, uh, reflection into your search process and you hire someone who is excellent and from a diverse background, uh, you have to also make sure that you can keep them. So this sort of looks at the the other side of the, the DEI triangle when it comes to faculty. So not just hiring and making sure you have a representative faculty body, but uh, ensuring that those folks feel a sense of belonging on campus. So when we think about inclusiveness or inclusion and faculty, uh, what are some of the tips that you give to higher ed leaders for ensuring that uh, they are able to keep the, the smart, talented, and diverse folks that they hire? 
One is just recognition of the challenge, uh, Rachel. Uh, you know, one issue that happens often is that uh, the minority scholar is lonely many times, right? In, in many departments, right? They are one of a handful. And so um, a lot of fanfare, you know, can be, you know, exhibited. Once a hire is made, we have found somebody, we've hired them. But one of the challenges I think is um, for many institutions, they may think their job is done, right? <laughs> you know, um, but the reality is there has to be a recognition of the challenges unique to the minority faculty member. Uh, one wrote a column for us recently and he said, yeah, yeah, they, they, they bring us in, they brought me in. I was excited, I was given my ideas. You know, but, you know, when it came to um, having a seat at the table in the department, I felt isolated. When it came to dealing with students, you know, they will look at me and say, wow, I mean, is this my professor? Right. And so the experience can be very isolating. And to the extent that institutions feel that once they had a cluster hire and half were minorities and they are done, um, that is half the battle, right? So the other half is to create a climate where minority scholars feel valued. They feel like they have um, mobility because if they come in, Rachel, and they believe that um, they were window dressing, right? <laughs> they believe that there was some tokenism happening. Um, they're not getting mentored. You know, the reality is that if we talk about uh, the tenure promotion process, uh, I always say I almost think that it's intentionally vague in so much you uh, have to be in the club, right? You have to have the right mentor. You have to have the right uh, relationship. So someone can, you know, tell you, hey, here's a secret sauce. This is how you get tenure. Info. And so that, that is still there. That climate is still there. Uh, and so I think that that's just, it's important, the whole mentoring piece. Be intentional. You already know that they're by themselves. They're going to be lonely. They're going to have issues. So I think institutions need to be intentional with mentoring programs for junior minority uh, faculty. Uh, and you also have to be intentional in terms of giving these minority faculty the sensation that they have a future. You know, an article we wrote recently said, hey, you know, one of the things that could be helpful, you know, early career name professorships, right? You know, um, give the junior minority faculty the sense that they have a future at that institution, right? Uh, and make it clear, tenure promotion does not need to be, you know, as, you know, intentionally opaque as it is, right? Get somebody intentionally say, hey, we want to invest in you. We want you to see you succeed in this department. We are looking for you in five years uh, to achieve tenure. And, and here are some of the things that we want to see. All right. And so I think that um, professional development opportunities, um, be intentional, um, be intentional with regards to, you know, name professorships, opportunities, you know, uh, be intentional in terms of the mentoring, under, understanding the unique challenge and the loneliness, Rachel, that the minority faculty can experience once the, uh, once the cameras uh, are turned off, you know, 
and they get to the nitty gritty, uh, it can be a lonely road and uh, retention is a problem. You know, they will get out as soon as they can. So I think that we, we just have, there has to be an understanding that hiring them is half the battle, but supporting them, nurturing them, mentoring them, making them feel like they are part of the family, making, making them feel like they have a future. Um, you've got to have programs that are intentional along these lines, should institutions want their young minority faculty to stay. Yeah, I think that point that you make about the named professorships is a really important one and a, and a, a, a tactic or strategy that often schools don't think of. There's one school I remember talking to who uh, they had a target of opportunity hire and uh, named the, the professorship and instantly saw more uh, competitive applications for it. Um, so it's important. I think that's an, it's a helpful tactic for both hiring and for making uh, the, the candidates who end up in the position feel more valued within the, the community. I want to go back to this mentorship topic, though, because I think it's really important. And I think that it's very easy to stay sort of abstract about what good mentorship looks like and how to set up good mentorship that helps uh, folks from very or diverse backgrounds feel comfortable and belong and feel like they're being you know, developed uh, for a long-term tenure at the institution. What are some of the, I guess, hallmarks of a good mentoring relationship? What are some of the things that schools can do to make sure uh, when they're being intentional that their mentorship relationships with young faculty are going to work? The right people, Rachel, the right people. Um, When you are, you know, not everybody is gifted that way in terms of being able to mentor for for various reasons, right? For various reasons. So I think institutions need to identify in every department those who are gifted uh, as mentors, those who have um, a track record of bringing along young faculty of of many stripes, right? It is not even diverse faculty. Mentors who have have shown a track record of bringing junior faculty um, through the tenure process, um, getting them promoted, right? So I think identifying the right people is vital. People who have shown the ability um, and have the giftedness to mentor young faculty. Now, of course, uh, there's another step to that because we've talked about some of the challenges that minority faculty have um, that are unique, you know, the, the, the loneliness, the burdens of, of service, right? We haven't even you know, discussed that. That's a huge issue, right? You know, the young, fac- young minority faculty is asked many times to sit on every diversity council and every, every committee that they see, oh man, we have this, you know, Hispanic young, we need to get her on this. And so, and of course they're young, right? They want to prove themselves. You know, they want, they'll say yes every time, but saying yes every time will not help them, you know, in terms of, you know, being able to, you know, write the books and, and, and produce the, the book chapters and, and do that research. They're saying yes every time, but a lot of times regrettably it's at their detriment when it comes to tenure, right? Because they will look and say, Hey man, you, you, you know, when I, when I stack you, as a minority faculty up against 
uh, somebody else, I see you, your, your scholarly output uh, has not been as, as stellar. Um, and then the minority faculty say, well, listen, look at my service, right? Look at, look at how, look, you asked me to do all these things, but at the same time, and so there's a penalty when it comes to um, tenure. But I think that faculty have to be identified who are mentors, who are gifted mentors, who have a track record of producing um, young scholars and taking them through uh, the process. Once you identify the right people, hold them accountable. Hold them accountable. Say, listen, we're, we've just hired, we've cluster hired five, you know, diverse faculty. We see you've been able to do this. We're expecting you to do this again with these minority faculty. So the right people um, to be mentors and hold them accountable for outcomes. Uh, and I think that to the extent that institutions focus on that issue, uh, they, can, they can see some success. So it's about identifying and equipping uh, mentors and also, uh, as you said, holding them accountable. But it also sounds like then also rewarding them by um, uh, taking uh, into account how those mentorship, those service activities are going to fit into the overall picture of the work that they're doing for the department um, and maybe adjusting your uh, your tenure requirements. So I really appreciate all of your uh, time today, David, and, and walking us through these, these big challenges and also some of the paths toward uh, success and progress that you and your colleagues at Diverse have been tracking lately. As you think about that question of progress, uh, what are some things that are giving you hope that are lighting up your day uh, when it comes to particularly to seeing more representation and better development in, in faculty? Thanks so much, Rachel. You know, I, I have to say uh, what's giving me hope uh, specifically uh, is the response to uh, Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, of course, in my time, I've seen various flashpoints of outrage. You know, um, you know, a African-American student is, you know, unjustly treated on campus and, and a tenure case that's so blatant, you know, that we, we could see that there was you know, blatant discrimination against this scholar. Um, but a lot of that activity um, a lot of those incidents that I have observed in the past are just, are just flashpoints. But it seems to me that the climate is different. Perhaps it's the pandemic. Perhaps it's the fact that we're all home and we're all zoned in. Um, there seems to me to be a sustained emphasis on uh, going beyond um, the slogans and the sayings, but to be uh, intentionally diverse. We talk about this whole um, issue of, you know, Ibram Kendi. Uh, as you know, he's a scholar. He's at BU right now. And uh, this whole issue of being anti-racist, the fact that it's not just enough to say, I'm not racist, you know, I I'm okay with all different races. No, you have to work at it, right? Because since there's been so much uh, discrimination, we have, you know, this structure of discrimination, now you have to work actively to dismantle it. So what's giving me hope, Rachel, is that across the board, higher education, business, 
um, there has been a response that's been unprecedented, Rachel, with regards to uh, understanding that it's not enough simply um, to say that I'm not a racist, or I'm not biased, but there's been an intentional focus on anti-racist work, working to say, you know what, this uh, construct uh, of uh, bias and discrimination, we have to work to bring it down, Rachel. So what gives me hope is that, you know, given the response to Black Lives Matter across higher education, across society, what gives me hope is that this is not a flash in the pan. Um, there is going to be a sustained focus on not just saying I am not biased, but working to root it out wherever I find it. So uh, that gives me hope, Rachel. That gives me hope that um, it looks like um, we are going to sustain some progress rather than it being uh, just a, a flash in the pan. And I got to mention this, Rachel, before we close, you know, what, one key example, and this is outside of higher education, but I, I find it instructive. You know, I'm here in the uh, Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. And for years, for years, we've kept hearing, Rachel, that, you know, the uh, Washington Redskins are going to change their name. You know, and, and the owner said, never, never. But something changed, Rachel. Something changed in the culture. We said, you know what? No, this is no longer acceptable. We need to work actively um, to make people feel more included. So let's remove that name. And to the extent that in higher education, we have this same attitude that it's not enough uh, simply to say that we are not biased. We need to work to root it out, work to um, dismantle bias. To the extent that, Rachel, this is not a flash in the pan, it is sustainable, I think that uh, I have hope uh, that uh, we can get somewhere with regards to uh, promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion. Well, David Pluvios, thank you so much for all of the work that you and your colleagues at Diverse do every day, actively helping us make progress on uh, diversity and, and equity and inclusion. And thank you for your time and for this wonderful conversation today. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thanks again for listening. Join us again next week when we explore the good, the bad, and the ugly of campus repopulation efforts, as EAB's Tess Frenzel and Michael Fisher examine what worked and what didn't this fall. Until then, for Office Hours with EAB, I'm Matt Pelish.